Tonight, I want to invite you to grab your Bible and start making your way to Deuteronomy. And in case uh, you're wondering why Deuteronomy, let me remind you that we started this journey through the Torah at the beginning of the year. And yeah, we, we took a break to study Zechariah. Uh, where else would you go to take a break? Obviously, Zechariah. Uh, I love our church so much. Uh, but we're ready to come back to the Torah uh, to finish this final piece, book five of five, known as Deuteronomy. Uh, the youth pastors have been tasked to take us through this amazing book, and I'm so excited to get us started tonight. Uh, let me say this about Deuteronomy. I think you found it by now, but maybe I'll give you another second to keep turning. But uh, let me say this. It seems to be a book that's uh, misunderstood by so many believers today. Today's Christian, perhaps, I don't know, for whatever reason, maybe a, an annual Bible reading program or maybe a short attention span they find when they get to Deuteronomy that it's, it's a little bit boring, that it seems to be a book that's a little bit repetitive. Um, like, I don't know, when you get your order repeated back to you at your favorite dining establishment called In-N-Out. Uh, when I take my family to In-N-Out, I'm ordering for six people. Uh, and two of those people are teenage boys that can eat like a whole cow. So I don't need my, you know, order repeated. Honestly, by the time we get to that point, I just feel like saying, hey, we've been through this. It's a lot. Can we just speed this along? Can, can we get to where, where we're going here? And, and I think Deuteronomy can feel like that. But it's so much more than that, so much more than just a a recycling of events or a repeat of what's happened for the sake of accuracy. This book is so worth our time and it's, it's so worth our study, but we have to understand some important details about Israel's history to truly get what we need tonight. We, we, we may need some reminders to grasp the grace of Yahweh that is on display in this incredible book. So let me just try to catch us up. Uh, if you were going to read from Genesis through Deuteronomy, I mean, Genesis, you have such an exciting book to begin with. You know, wow, what, what a great start. There's creation and the fall. There's God's promise of redemption. Then just an avalanche of exciting and gripping narrative. There's the flood and Noah and his family. There's so much there. And you, you have that fresh beginning, which it is very short-lived that leads to the Tower of, of Babel, where instead of God's glory and God's name being magnified, man is sort of added again, man's sinfulness on display again as they're trying to make their name great. And still in Genesis, both the judgment of God and the grace of God are sort of filling the pages of Scripture. God's 
promises, though, they continue. Now with Abraham, a unique promise made to him to be the first of God's chosen people and a promise for land and a promise to be a blessing to the nations. And that story moves from Abraham to his sons and their sons. And it's a fascinating, captivating narrative. It takes that little nation of Israel all the way to Egypt. One of Jacob's sons, Joseph, he survives his brother's jealousy over that colorful coat. Uh, No longer a slave or, or a prisoner, Joseph is now second in command to Pharaoh, and he gets to help his family survive that famine that he prophesied would come. And Genesis closes with God's people doing pretty well. No one's yearly Bible reading plan struggles in Genesis, but in Exodus, the story continues. And yes, we do need a good grasp on Genesis, but really it's here in Exodus and all that will happen next that helps us understand so much more about Deuteronomy. So what happens? Well, time passes. God's people are now no longer under the care of that nice Pharaoh. A new Pharaoh is in charge, and he decides that little nation is getting a little too big. And he wants to put them under his control, especially as they begin to outnumber the Egyptians. And so God's people are put into slavery. For 400 years, they serve Uh, But Exodus tells us that they also multiply, both in number and stature. They grow, and Pharaoh decides one day that enough is enough. And the midwives, by decree of Pharaoh, are to put all those male Hebrew newborns into the Nile River. But Moses, who should have been one of those put to death by this new Pharaoh's Decree, he's spared by another ark, a smaller ark, a basket, and he's delivered. And God plans to use this man named Moses to begin the deliverance of his people. Moses grows under the care of Pharaoh's daughter and even his own mother because God can do that sort of thing. Older and bigger, one day Moses flees Egypt after killing an Egyptian. And for 40 years, he lives in the wilderness. And one day God calls him through that burning bush to go back to Egypt and deliver his people who've been crying out to God for deliverance. And there's more exciting narrative, the 10 plagues, and eventually with pillars of smoke and fire And even a miraculous water escape, God delivers his people from Egypt. He begins to bring into reality that promise that he made Abraham so many years before. The promised land comes back into the picture. Now God's people begin to learn a different lesson. They start to understand what's required of them for God to dwell among them. They learn afresh of God's holiness and their sinfulness and all that it takes to, to, to keep God in their presence. And they march closer and closer to that promised land. 
but God's people aren't quite there yet, despite that miraculous exodus, despite the miracles, despite the walking through that sea on dry ground, God's people still lack faith. God's people were on the edge of that promised land and under God's direction, they decide that they should send spies in just to check it out. You can read about it in Numbers 13 and the report of that land after 40 days, it verified exactly what God had said. It is an incredible land. They brought back grapes and fruit and this amazing report and testimony of of what they saw, but they also spoke of something else amazing, the people who lived there. They were too big and they were too strong and they were too fortified. So only Joshua and Caleb have faith to proceed. Two of the spies, they're the only two who want to go in. Who cares? Let's go. We can take them. God has promised us this land. That was the desire of those two spies, Joshua and Caleb. But the rest of the spies... Mm -mm. they convince Israel with their bad report that they should not go in. So instead of running full sprint towards the promised land, they showcase their distrust in God. Their fear is much larger than their faith. For 40 years They wander the wilderness here and there and everywhere. Well, everywhere except the promised land. And as judgment, they wander for one purpose, that that generation that did not believe would perish. And they do. All that's left is Moses and Joshua and Caleb. Moses is 120. Joshua and Caleb are, are 90 at this point. And now God's people, a new generation, once again, recipients of God's grace, get another shot at the promised land. And before they go, Moses wants to speak to this new generation. He wants them to, to remember something from their past. Listen to the opening words here of chapter one. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. Verse three, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. Beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law saying, the Lord our God said to us in Horeb, you've stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negeb and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Verse 8, see, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. 
Moses is reminding this second generation of the words that God told that first generation there on Mount Sinai or Horeb, as Moses calls it here in Deuteronomy. And so this next generation, they they face the, the same opportunity to obey God, the same opportunity to possess the land that God had promised them. And as the people prepare to enter the land, Moses is compelled to preach. He, he wants to preach to them one last time. And from his sermons, there is so much for us to learn. Deuteronomy is not just a book about all the things that we've already read. It's more than just the law on repeat. It's not just your in and out order being read back to you. No, there's so much here for us to to listen to and learn from God's word. And, And of course, there's repetition. The Ten Commandments are in here again, and there are reminders of laws, many of them that were previously given. But don't be tempted by familiarity to be bored. There is so much here to keep us from boredom. Deuteronomy is captured in a series of sermons, and these sermons review Israel's history. And it's that history that calls Israel to so many things. History calls her to live faithfully to God. It demands that she live prioritizing loyalty to both God and loyalty to his covenant. It's a book that's purposed to remind God's people of the consequences of disobedience and the blessings that often accompany covenant-keeping lifestyle. Israel finds herself again with her toes on the edge of this promised land. And this last series of sermons by Moses, they're meant to prepare God's people as they acquire this land that God has promised them. Through Moses, God's people, they're they're compelled to commitment towards God and they're urged to a wholehearted trust in Yahweh. And just to be clear, circumstances for inhabiting the land haven't really changed, okay? There's no welcome signs on the edge of the promised land. They still face all the same difficulties. There's still so much in front of them, but just as before, clear direction from God is it's given and Once again, God's people have an opportunity to to trust him and to live for him. And I feel like already we can relate so much to this book. I mean, yeah, none of us are on the edge of the Jordan. I get that. (laughs) Few of us, I think, are fighting with our neighbors over land, but all of us are compelled to faithfully follow Christ despite the circumstances in front of us. And these sermons of Moses delivered on the plains of Moab, they are so far from dull. This 
rich theology found here. It places Deuteronomy in a really in a category that can only be compared to Romans of the New Testament. And as one commentator points out, it's a better comparison to the book of John. Just as John wrote after or several decades after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, so Moses preaches these sermons after four decades of reflection on what had transpired, 40 years of contemplating, 40 years to think about what God had done from the exodus to the wandering in the wilderness as all but he and Joseph and Caleb are left. Israel must learn from her past. She must learn from her history of the pain and judgment that come from disobedience and disloyalty to God and his covenant. And church family, you and I, we we, we need those same lessons. It's Moses' hope, of course, that this generation will learn to respond to God's grace with unreserved love for God and, and to respond to his grace that's on display in their history. Really practically, Moses wants them to learn from the mistake they just made, to, to go in, to possess the land, to enter, to, to not be so afraid, to not let their faith be silenced by their fear. They need to go forward. They need to trust in what God has said, to be faithful to God, no matter what sort of challenges lie ahead. They need to pursue holiness and obedience and loyalty to God, especially in light of the temptation to adapt to the lifestyle of those who are already in the land. Moses knows that's going to be a temptation to farm like they farm, to live like they live, to worship gods, false gods. And do you not face similar challenges to pursue holiness, to pursue obedience in your daily lives? Are you not challenged to remain faithful to God despite your circumstances? Do you not need to resist the world's temptation to live like they live and to worship like they do or better don't? We're also compelled to avoid compromise to the world's enticing lure. And Deuteronomy, it's meant to help us just as much as those who heard Moses preach it the first time. Deuteronomy is is worth our study, but you might need more. Let me give you just a little bit more. This book, it has influenced the the prophets more than any other book. So frequently quoted by Isaiah and, and Jeremiah. And in the New Testament, the apostles, especially Paul, uh, portions of Deuteronomy are found in almost every New Testament book. Of course, it had such a a great influence on our Lord Jesus as he often quoted it. With such a wide influence, perhaps you should let Deuteronomy influence you as well. 
And if that weren't enough, let me give you just one more, one more point of introduction, one more motivation to listen, and it's this. Deuteronomy is a book that is filled with the grace of Yahweh. It's a book that focuses on it. This book is all about grace. There isn't a person on the planet that won't benefit from understanding God's grace a little clearer. And it's the grace of Yahweh that will be our topic over the next five weeks. There are five sermons of Moses or five sections that capture for the reader something crucial about God's grace. And as God's people are called by Moses to embrace this grace of Yahweh in a fresh way, so you and I are challenged to do the same. And it first is to remember the grace of Yahweh. And we're going to see that tonight in the first four chapters of this book. And to give you a little glimpse of what's ahead, we'll move from remembering to explaining the grace of Yahweh and then trusting. We'll look at celebrating the grace of Yahweh and we'll end with Moses and anticipating the matchless grace of Yahweh. Those will be our topics. And it's my joy to begin tonight with the first, remembering the grace of Yahweh. Our section tonight is the first four chapters. We're going to go all the way through verse 43 of chapter 4. And I, I wish that we had time to look at all of it, but it's truly the sermonic tone that Moses uses in chapter 4 that I want us to focus on. But to get there quickly, we, we just have to sweep through the first three chapters because we'll be lost without them. The first three chapters, they are primarily a historical reminder from Moses to this new generation, okay? On the cusp, this generation that's on the cusp of inhabiting the promised land, it's a historical reminder. And what is that reminder? I believe it's this, that God's grace has been prevalent and God's grace has been prominent in their past and also in their present. It's so widespread throughout their history and also in the moments they're living right now that it's impossible to miss. But I believe Moses is, is worried that they've forgotten. God's grace has often been on display and yet God's people seem to have spiritual amnesia. This next generation of Israel, probably a lot like today's New Testament believer, Moses is concerned that the wilderness wanderings might have made them quick to forget what God has done, that they might be a, you know, what has God done for me lately kind of people. So Moses begins with reminding them that God was so gracious to their ancestors and that God has also been gracious to them. Moses wants to instill into this generation that they can also expect that God will continue to be gracious in their future. And that's really the approach that 
Moses takes God's grace on display in their past, present, and one day in the future. Moses begins in chapter 1 of how God's grace was on display to that first generation. Chapter 1, verse 6, through the end of the chapter, it focuses on that Exodus generation. We might think of it this way, uh, remembering the grace of Yahweh in the past. Moses begins at Mount Sinai or, or Horeb, and the first 18 verses, they recollect all that God had said through Moses as they prepared to depart and head towards the land. Moses called for leaders of each tribe, and they appoint men to, to lead, and not only lead, but to judge and help them as a people and as tribes that were going to be in need of some help and some leadership, solving issues and the like. And then verse 19, we, Moses says, Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And then verse 20, through the end of the chapter, it, it serves as a reminder to the people of the failure of that Exodus generation. It's, it's a really sad narrative. It was the rebellion of the people against the Lord's command to go in, against his command to possess the land. It was uh, to be a reminder of the rejection of God's grace. Look at verse 30 of chapter 1. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. Verse 33 of chapter 1, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. Verse 40 begins to capture the, the people's attempt to sort of fix their sin. It's their really sad attempt to avoid God's judgment by, by trying to correct their failure. God had told them already, turn around, go back into the wilderness. I'm not going to go with you or be with you, but the people would not listen to the word of the Lord. They attack the Amorites anyway. They rejected God's command and they tried to take matters into their own hands. And it says in verse 44, they were chased away like children running from bees. Verse one of chapter two, it says, then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days, we traveled around Mount Seir. It's interesting because chapter one, it focuses on about a year of Israel's life. And verse one of chapter two, the, the, the many days there, well, that's almost 40 years of Israel's life just traveling around Mount Seir, just circling the desert. And chapter two begins this recap now of this new generation. It's 
to be a reminder of the grace of Yahweh in the present, what God is doing now in their generation in, in this time with these people. And Moses recollects how they traveled through the land belonging to the descendants of Esau and how they were to be careful and kind as they passed through. That land was not theirs, but a land that God had promised to Esau and to Esau's descendants, and God had graciously paved the way for Israel. As they inch closer to home, Moses reminds them of the big picture. You know, why did we travel around the wilderness for those 38 years? Simple. They were waiting for God's judgment to be filled. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Another reminder of judgment. And even in that, there's a a reminder of, of grace. This new generation peacefully moving through the land of Esau and the land of the Moabites. But it wasn't all smooth and and easy. Sion, the king of of Heshbon, would not allow this vast people to travel through his land, no matter what sort of offer Moses was willing to make. Verse 30 tells us why. But Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. God had a purpose. God's grace, it's on display here again. God wanted the nations to to fear his people, verse 25. God was preparing Israel to take possession of this land that he had promised them, and he's giving them a little confidence, a little boost here as they prepare to attempt to succeed where that generation before them had failed. And of course, it's helpful and it's easier to do that if everyone's afraid of you. And that's what God is doing here. After Sion came Og, uh, another king and another name that probably shouldn't be on your list of baby names. And the, the victory over Og here was was purposed the same by God. Look at verse two of chapter three. The Lord said to me, don't fear him for I've given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you should do to him as you did to Sion, the king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon. So the land that they conquered, not only did it serve as a confidence boost, but it served another great purpose. It became a a base camp Uh, for some of the tribes, Reuben and Gad and Manasseh. They were allowed to to settle their families there and place their livestock, but it wasn't a time to totally settle down. They were to cross the Jordan and they were to help take uh, control of the promised land and not rest until all the tribes had the land promised them. In chapter three, it, it closes with, Moses charging Joshua and encouraging him and strengthening him as the next leader of the people and the leader that God had chosen and the leader who will help the people accomplish this task. So the first three chapters are a lot of history, but 
It's not history, but rather divine grace that's important. Grace and the reminder to this new generation to not be rebellious. Grace to have the opportunity to remember the past. Grace to learn from the lesson of their ancestors' rebellion. And and grace to see how God has blessed them as the next generation to try again and to try to carry out the promises that God had made. Grace to see God's purposes, not just in the past, but also in the present and how God had graciously preserved them and how God had graciously provided for them. God's plan is is still very much in place and this new generation now already able to see God's grace on display as they inherit land and how they can be confident that God will continue to be gracious to them in the future. Unlike that Exodus generation after their failure, now this generation sees God is working. He's with us. God's being faithful to his promise. To say that in a much quicker way, so much grace, past, present, future. After 40 years of contemplation, why did Moses begin with a history lesson? I'm not sure who said it. Someone, somewhere, obviously, but probably just our pastor. Let's give him credit. Pastor John said, forgetfulness is one of the greatest enemies of our faith. Forgetfulness is one of the greatest enemies of our faith. This history lesson, it is imperative. Israel must remember what God has done. And the reminder of his faithfulness and his graciousness towards them in the past, it's what gives them strength for today and confidence for tomorrow. Moses focuses their attention on the past and then on the present so that they will see this divine grace on display. And the hope is that this remembrance will motivate a response. Moses' hope is that the people will respond to this amazing grace with wholehearted devotion for the future. In other words, they need a history lesson on God's grace to motivate them towards obedience. Obedience is always the appropriate response to divine grace. That's a lesson that all of us need. And that's precisely where Moses leads them in chapter four. In the remaining minutes here, I want us to see that in these opening verses of chapter four. Verse one, so now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to do so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I'm commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh, your God, which I'm commanding you. 
Your eyes have seen what Yahweh has done in the case of Baal Peor for all the men who walked after Baal Peor. Yahweh your God has destroyed them from among you. But you who clung to Yahweh your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as Yahweh my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you're entering to possess it. You shall keep and do them for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is Yahweh our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? After three chapters of historical reminiscence, Moses now switches to preacher mode. That so now and the call to listen, uh, verse 1, those are indications that this proclamation by Moses here will begin to have some significant meaning. Chapter 4 introduces a lot of themes that will drive the rest of Moses' sermons throughout this book You'll find God's love for Israel here, his election over his people, his covenant relationships with them. That's here. God's deliverance from rival nations. All that's here in various amounts and other themes as well. But most central seems to be God's expectation of obedience. God's expectation of obedience to his will. And and Moses seems to have a plan here as he began with Horeb in chapter 1 and sort of worked his way to the present at the end of chapter 3. Chapter 4 is actually Moses just working backward. He'll start with really recent events at the beginning and work all the way back to Horeb. He actually ends this chapter with how really Israel came into being that you can read about in Genesis. So chapter four does all that, but it's also a reminder of the need to never forget what God has done. For this new generation that's so ready to take the land, Moses wants them to frequently retrace their steps back to Exodus, back to this incredible moment where God's grace is undeniably on display and has been ever since. And with a full view of that grace, Moses turns to instruction. And so it's this grace that he's been sort of making them remember, and it's this grace that he hopes will drive their obedience. So the first eight verses here in chapter four, they're they're really a great summary of the entire chapter. And there is but one point. Obedience is always the right response to God's grace. A big idea, if you will. Obedience is always the right response to God's grace. In other words, you might ask, you know, why do we need to remember the grace of Yahweh for obedience? Well, the more that we can understand God's grace, the better we know it, the easier that it is for us to 
respond in obedience to God's word, to God's will. And the more that we see God's grace in our past, the quicker we recognize it on display in our present, the more trust that we have in it for our future, well, I promise you, the easier it's going to be for you to obey God. Let's just look at this first section here in, in three parts. We'll call verse one the expectation for obedience. The expectation for obedience. Verse one begins with this simple commands to, to listen and do. This verse, it really captures the essence of the whole chapter. Listen to the statutes, listen to the judgments that Moses is teaching and do them. The statutes and the judgments. You may be asking, you know, what are those? Well, statutes, that informs us that these are laws from a superior. And judgments, those are divine decisions concerning the way of righteousness, or in this case, covenant righteousness. And these two words are often found together. Uh, It's believed that they form kind of a, a singular idea. It's like saying alpha and omega or, or A to Z. Uh, it's the whole kitchen sink, the whole ball of wax. Those phrases are like this one. It's all of it. That's what Moses is trying to say. It's an idea when he says statutes and judgments to indicate totality. We're to listen not just to parts, but to all of the law. In our case, all of God's word. So Moses is using shorthand, you could say, for what God had said at Horeb and everything since. And it isn't enough just to listen. We must also do. That's familiar territory, isn't it? James chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We deceive ourselves, to use Moses' words, when we listen but we don't exactly do. Or like James says, when we are hearers only. And so with a fresh view of God's grace, we should be motivated to be more than those with extensive Bible knowledge without an ounce of godly living. Knowing the scriptures doesn't make you obedient. It's listening and doing. It's, it's doing them. It's putting into practice what you're learning. Psalm 119, verse 4. Psalmist writes, you've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Moses insisted that this next generation be both listeners and doers. Knowledge of the scriptures without obedience is worthless. And we could press that statement a little further and say the only parts of the Bible uh, you know and actually believe, well, those are the parts that you obey. And so Israel was to listen and do 
Why? Well, verse one, so that they may live, so that they may obey God's instruction and that they may receive God's blessing. They don't have much of a choice when it comes to listening, but they do have a choice for whether or not they're going to do it. Will they be doers? Will they obey? And again, you and I face such similar questions, don't we? And, and daily Seems like James may have been reading a lot of Deuteronomy. Just a few verses later, he writes this in James 1.25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. When we forget God's grace and we neglect what God has done and what God is doing, it's much easier to forget the blessing that comes with obedience. We can't forget God's grace. We must listen and do the word of God. And when we do, when we put God's word into practice, we can expect blessing. And and verse two begins to unpack some motivations for obedience. Verses two to five, we could call the motivation for obedience. God's word is the standard, Moses argues. God's word is complete. Nothing is to be deleted. Nothing needed to be added to it. Verse 3 and 4 sort of reminds God's people of the events that took place back in Numbers 25. Some of God's people aligned themselves with Moabites. And in that alignment, they were enticed to worship with the Moabites. They, they worshiped the, the Baals and God's anger was kindled against them. God's anger was on display at their idolatry and their infidelity and it cost them their life. So Moses is reminding the, the people that, that God's word in, in its entirety is to be followed and they have all of God's instruction that they need. And with that little illustration too fresh in their mind, it's it's so simple. There's life to those who cling to Yahweh. Moses is just relentlessly reiterating the importance of obedience to God's will, the importance of obedience to God's word. And then Moses will finish his opening argument with a reminder of the privilege associated with obedience. We'll we'll call our third point that, the privilege of obedience, verses six to eight. Verse six says, keep them and do them. God's people are to learn from Moses and their response is that they should listen. They should put into practice what they are learning. They're to keep the law by doing the law, but not as some heavy burden. Rather, Moses argues this is a unique privilege. He sort of creates this fictitious people group who will witness their obedience and they will respond with accolades of amazement and envy Obedience to the word of God is not a bother, but a a benefit. It's not a pain, but a, a privilege. Keeping the law by doing the law will make them the envy of the nations. It will make them a light to the lost. 
But even the lost will recognize the privilege of living life God's way. God's obedient people will be applauded for their wisdom, Moses says. You'll be applauded for your understanding, for your listening and doing, your keeping and doing. Dan Block points out that their obedience will produce this wow from the nations. And it will, in effect, label them a great nation. That's what they'll say. This is a great nation, which, of course, is fulfilling God's promise made to Abraham. That they would be called a great nation through their obedience. There will not be anyone like them. What great nation is there? That question asked not once but twice in the closing verses with the implied answer of no one. And we learn that this this nation is great, not because of anything to do with them, but what does it say? It has everything to do with who their God is, Yahweh, their God. He is the one that makes them great. Verse 7, they're great because they have a God so near to them. This God, this Yahweh is near to his people, a God who's not only near, but who hears and answers their, their prayers. These people are blessed by God and they're recognized as great by the nations. Why? Because he's a God who's near. He's a God who answers prayer. And verse eight, because they know what God expects of them. They have his righteous laws. They have access to what God expects. They know his direction when problems arise. Especially as they interact with each other. The nation's surrounding the people of God were to be witnesses of the justice and the righteousness of the laws that God expected his people to follow. And so many of those laws, they, they had to do with their interactions with each other. God expected that his people would be a godly society, treating one another with care and love and striving for unity despite preferences and other physical and social boundaries that often segregate and divide a nation, not for Israel. They were to follow God's righteous rules. They would deal righteously with each other over all the issues of life. That was God's expectation. They would be a great nation indeed as they lived in obedience to God's direction, especially with one another. So there's no platinum status in God's kingdom. Or if there is, everybody has it. So these first eight verses here, this little section, it's, Man, it's almost as if Moses is talking directly to us, isn't it? Listen and do, not just to some, but to all of God's word. And and not just listen, but be doers. Don't pick and choose what parts of God's word you're going to obey. You obey all of it. Don't add, don't delete, don't manipulate, don't change the word of God. Obey him and cling to him as you see his judgment on display all around. We have such privilege to to learn God's word and we should keep it by 
doing it. And when we do, it's, it's not a burden, but rather it's such a blessing on our lives, isn't it? Do we not recognize the privilege to obey God's word and the, the good that it brings into our life, the joy we have to be a light to the lost, to our neighbors and family and friends who need Christ so desperately? We get to know that God is near. We get to know that he hears our prayers and that we have not just in part, but the totality of his word knowing what he expects in our life, but also the way he expects us to deal with each other. And what grace is ours in the word of God? What grace is ours to know God? It's so simple. Yet so often we we just don't obey as we should. Why is that? What hinders your obedience to God? I'm sure there are many answers to that question. Our own sinful desires that tempt us, uh, our pride, lust of our uh, flesh, the passions of our flesh. It, just, it could be the world and its temptation. Maybe it's the, the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in day after day, but just a wonder if perhaps the biggest reason we give in to temptation and sin rather than obey is that we don't often enough remember the grace of Yahweh in our lives. If Moses was pointing the people to daily remember the law and the grace of Yahweh on display since the day at Horeb, I hope you recognize the grace of Yahweh that you need to daily remember. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What is John saying? The, the law of God, the Torah for the Old Testament believer, for us, we, we could say the word of God, what grace there is in that law given by Moses. But what superior and infinite grace there is that has come through Jesus Christ. Only the incarnation of Jesus bringing grace and truth could outdo the grace of the law. And as Moses insists that the people daily remember the law and what was said, so now God expects that we daily remember his son and what he did. John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
remembering the grace of Yahweh in your life, it has to begin with the gospel. The gospel is a grace unlike any other. And when you remind yourself every day that God gave you the right to become his child through the death of Christ on the cross, when that's a daily thought you have, I think you'll find it much easier to obey his word. Much easier to to want to obey his will. Let's let Moses have the final word. Chapter 4, back to Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Church family, Don't forget what Christ has done. Remember the grace of Yahweh. Father, thank you so much for your grace. It's always been on display. It has since creation, Father, and it will never end. What a joy to know that grace, a joy to know you in salvation and know the blessings that come with being your child. Father, I pray that you would bless our study through Deuteronomy. Even now, God, I pray that you would help us to remember, to daily remember what you've done. Father, I I pray that as we grow in our understanding of your grace, that obedience to your word, that it would be our response. Lord, help us to listen and do in remembrance of what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.